Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Each Other Has. Mm, I didn't like how that sounded. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought it was cute. And welcome back to another episode of All Each Other Has. At long last, we're finished with our private school series. Thanks for sticking around, and we hope you enjoyed that um, and that you enjoyed our guests. Um, we are doing something very different today, and that is a special Halloween episode um, in which we're going to be talking about ghosts and witches and the supernatural, and of course, um, looking at it in the second half through more of an academic lens. Um, we're really excited. Ellie, why are you making that face? Is I'm there not... something wrong with my audio? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Sorry. Okay. Um, we're really excited to get started. And this episode is a little more off the cuff than usual. So we hope you enjoy the format. Where do Where do we begin? It's time for us to get a little witchy this Halloween episode. Um, and talk about spirits and ghosts and witchcraft and the occult. And specters. And spectrals. Specters, not spectrals. Well, you spectral, like, isn't that related? Like, yeah, but you said spectrals. Spectral, sorry. Well, you know, spectral, 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 appari- sorry, <laughs> spectral apparitions. Right. From the spectral plane, right? Isn't that a thing? I don't know. Um <laughs> I guess we should start by saying, for the most part, our introduction to, and very basic introduction to the occult, um, came from our longtime live-in babysitter, Lori Beth. Shout um, out. Known only to us as Lori Beth, but known to most as just Lori. I guess mom had a lot of friends named Lori. <laughs> um, Lori Beth started working for us and moved in with us when I was three, and I guess Ellie, you were seven. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, at the time, she was an NYU student, very artistic, interesting, whimsical woman <laughs> who taught us things like Delta Dawn by Tanya Tucker, um, that song Tom Sawyer. She was oh, always doing Rush. art, right? <laughs> she was always doing art projects in her room. She was a vegetarian. <laughs> and she had grown up a Jehovah's Witness, actually, and had a, a pretty interesting childhood. She moved around a lot, was mostly from Tennessee. Um, but growing up, you know, she wasn't allowed to have Christmas trees or celebrate Halloween. And so I think that factored into her eventual interest in the occult after leaving the church. Um, but I don't know, Ellie, what do you want to say about Lori Beth? Um, Lori Beth, you know, raised us along with mom. They used to make jokes all the time that, you know, we we were raised by a mama and a mamo situation. Um, and yeah, I just remember her being very open to, you know, to the ideas of the supernatural. Um, and, you know, she would always say, well, you know, energy can neither be destroyed, created nor destroyed. So what happens to that energy when somebody dies? It, you know, it doesn't die too you know, the idea of a soul and kind of like that movie 21 Grams, which came out in the 2000s with Naomi Watts. Is that how I much guess. a soul weighs? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she used to show us 
photographs, and this is back when we actually, you know, went to the drugstore to get photographs developed. She would show us photographs of, <clears throat> with, you know, sort of lens flares that, oh, who knows what they, what they were, but she thought there were orbs right. in photographs that represented a spirit or something, right? Well, yeah, it's supposed to be like a soul that's been caught on camera. Some people will say it's just dust on the lens um, or just like a light trick. But you know what I'm talking about, orbs. Um, <laughs> Lori Beth used to also watch um, Ghost Hunters in her room. Yep. And that was like a special thing we did. Well, first of all, I just want to say Lori Beth introduced me to a lot of interesting reality TV, mostly on TLC. Um, we used to watch a baby story. <laughs> we used to watch, I mean, what were the other shows? Like Nanny Diaries, Wife Swap, lots of TLC stuff, um, Trading Spouses. and But we also used to watch on the Sci-Fi Channel, I think, Ghost Hunters. And she loved movies like Poltergeist, which we'll get to in a minute. But, um, well, Lori Beth is the person I learned about reincarnation from. I'm not sure if she totally believed in that. I, I don't know if she had decided yet, but that was the context in which I learned about reincarnation. And I used to find it super comforting. I mean, I don't think I had like a Buddhist background in it or the idea of karma, you know, carrying you through to the next life and determining what species you'd become. But um, I used to find a lot of comfort, I think, because our dad died when I was so young in the idea of reincarnation and that, you know, you don't remember your past life, but it's okay because now he, even though he doesn't know it, is somebody else. Mm. I would love for you to tell the story about our dad. Sure. Well, the first time Lori Beth told me that she felt like she had a connection to her dad. And this is interesting too, because Lori Beth really came to our, into our lives shortly after our dad died. He died when I was two and Ellie was six and Lori Beth started working for us when I was three and Ellie was seven. And I think around the time I was 10 and expressed an interest in sort of supernatural things, um, Lori Beth, one Thanksgiving had gone with some of her friends, obviously with my mom's permission to her house in Dutchess County, New York in Millbrook. And this was the house that really was our dad's baby. You know, he took care of that house. They got that house in part because he loved horses and it's a very horsey kind of place. Um, they lived in a historic, I think like mid 19th century home. It was full of antiques, full of his objects, um, largely civil war antiques and things like that. Remember that room? Yeah. Ellie, his, that his office. But it was just full of stuff, and I was always afraid to walk past it. Same. I, that room definitely felt haunted to me. Yeah. So we stopped going as much to Millbrook, I think. Definitely by the time Ellie was in high school, but even earlier than that, I think we liked being in the city on the weekends. I think at first, Millbrook was this place of respite for us. And mom writes about this in her book, how she kind of was like a camp counselor and we would watch um, fairy tale theater and do decoupage and mm -hmm. um, eat dinner and go pumpkin picking and all these things. And I have so many wonderful memories of Millbrook and listening to like the Dixie Chicks and Breathless by the Coors in the minivan and going to the outlet mall. And I don't know, it was 
a place full of wonderful memories, but we stopped really going regularly. Um, and I think it was also partly because it was sort of sad for mom to be there, right? Yeah. And I think we also, you know, I was probably a snotty middle schooler who wanted to hang out with her friends on the weekends and do um, soccer and softball and stuff. Right. Um, but anyways, yeah, of course, it was very much like our dad's place. Absolutely. Right. Lori Beth went for Thanksgiving to Millbrook with her friends. And I think shortly after they arrived and had lunch, she gave them a tour of the house. And I guess they walked past that office we mentioned that felt haunted, also felt haunted because it was full of Civil War objects. So it wasn't just maybe haunted by our dad, but also felt haunted by much older ghosts Mm. um, and by history. and, And we'll talk about that connection in a bit. But Lori Beth was giving them a tour. They walked past that room and her friend asked her, you know, started asking her questions about about our dad, about the things he liked to collect, um, about his interest in history. They're sitting around the kitchen table and all of a sudden all the lights go out. And it was very strange and they went outside and and talked to the neighbor and, and I guess their lights had not gone out. It wasn't like an issue with, with the whole street or something. Mm. Um, And then I think something happened the next day when they were talking about it again and the fire alarm went off. I don't know. I wasn't there, but I thought that was kind of interesting. That is really interesting. Um, The other story that Lori Beth would tell us, um, she uh, told us a story that, you know, before she came to our family, she was working for another family in Connecticut and in the middle of the night there once, she woke up and saw a man at the foot of her bed. I mean, scary, but whatever. And uh, the man said, you have to help Katie. You have to help Katie. And it wasn't until she interviewed and came, I think her second interview with mom, she came to the house and met us. And I remember we played a computer game together. Or she Freddie just, Fish. Yeah, she, she basically just watched me play a computer game. And I was like, she's really nice. Um <laughs> And uh, she said she saw all the photos of her dad and realized that that was the same man she saw at the foot of her bed. Or in her dream, right? In her dream, the vision that, you know, came to her. And um, it's it's funny because there were so, and there still are, but there were so many photos of our dad in our apartment. You know, mom is very sentimental. And so almost every surface of the apartment is covered with photographs, frames, um, Mm-hmm. And, you know, even our cousin Jeff, who lived with us for a year after our father died, said that he very, very much felt our dad's presence through all these photos and all of his things, all his antiques. And I just think it's, it must have been crazy for Lori Beth to walk in and, and recognize this person as the man who appeared to her. I, used, I was sort of upset when I heard that story. Um, and I think this is something we should talk about, Carrie, is, you know, belief in this stuff and whether or not you are open to it or cynical and what that says about you. I think a lot of people, you know, mom, for instance, found that story very comforting. And I want to know what you felt about it. But to me, it was sort of like, it felt almost a little bit like a violation, you know, like, I don't believe this. And this feels manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
Of Lori Beth? No, not of Lori Beth, not intentionally. I really do think maybe, you know, she believes what she saw. I think it's just the idea of, you know, I've never been someone to believe in mediums or, you know, being able to talk to our dad because I think that I'm, you know, it's so upsetting having lost him that I can't even, you know, it's hard for me to believe that I can still talk to him. And I think I had to, um, I had to realize that, you know, and I remember there was one time when mom, I was so upset that she was dating someone and rightfully so. I think mom was really frustrated and, you know, sort of said to me, you know, your father isn't coming back. And so I think that I had to realize that as part of the grieving process to like, so like to open that wound again was Mm -hmm. really hard. I think for me, what's hard about, I guess, imagining our dad as a ghost is that it makes me afraid of him um, instead of just interested in his memory and you know in the dining room in our apartment growing up there was that mannequin it's actually not a civil war mannequin it's some uniform i think from the spanish-american war and do you know you know what i'm talking about obviously of course yeah yeah it's a it's a mannequin and it's a man it's a man (laughs) it's a man and he almost at least to me that he looked like our dad Mm. you know he was sort of dark 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 hair and he had one of his hands was missing and it was sort of feebly concealed by this limp empty glove Mm. and um I think because that room in particular the dining room was so full of our dad's objects yeah and so rarely used (laughs) and well that's where I would do my homework at least in high school and um but you know, the dark blue wallpaper of something very gothic about it mm-hmm. and almost out of place because the rest of our apartment was very bright. I mean, it's like the classic late 90s, early 2000s, like Tuscan kitchen, Yes, um, which was such a thing. And you can look on Pinterest, but um, <laughs> that room, I remember, especially when I was younger, I'd be scared to walk past that room at night. And our dad never even lived in this apartment. Um, when he died, we were living two blocks away in a different uh, apartment. Um, So that was like a strange thing. But I think also for me, because I didn't know our dad and it was full of all these antiques, when I was little, I understood those objects as being his and things that he might have used, especially because, and and we could have a whole episode on the, the politics and nuances of his Civil War reenactment hobby. But because I'd seen him in pictures dressed like that and riding horses and I was always told, oh, he was a man born out of his time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I came to understand those objects as like things that he used in his daily life. Right. So I would picture my dad in dreams or just or daydreams, whatever, as like a 19th century person, totally, <laughs> which is strange. Um, like I didn't imagine him, even though sure, like there are pictures of him wearing like flannels and, you know, light jeans and very nineties kinds of clothes. Um, I didn't really see him as part of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Cause even now when you, you know, when you grow up and you look at the photos of him just in regular clothes, they also feel really dated too. Right. And I think that's why I'm a, a I think that's why Dawson's Creek, at least initially, <laughs> aesthetically appealed to me. But that's neither here nor there. Too funny. Well, let's talk about, unless you have more personal stories to tell. Wait, I think I was going to say oh, one thing about that room. Oh, just 
back to that mannequin, I used to have dreams all the time where that mannequin would come to life and he'd be stomping down the hallway toward my room and like salute me. And it was very scary. And I was definitely afraid of it. I mean, I got used to it, but I think he was something like I projected our, my fears over our dad's ghost onto. Um, I, I don't know. And I just wanted to say that the whole connection between ghosts and history telling is really interesting to me. And a scholar whose work I really appreciate is Taya Niles, and she teaches um, American Studies and African American Studies at Harvard. Um, and she wrote a book called Tales from the Haunted South, all about the meaning of ghost tours. She goes to Charleston, New Orleans, and Savannah, and she's kind of looking at the way in particular slavery is told through ghost stories. She's kind of going through the basics of what ghosts mean, especially in America. These unquiet souls of the dead are historical entities, fragments of the remembered past, spirited into our present time in order to disrupt the now. Ghostly visitors from the past fascinate us in large part because we mortal human beings are historically minded, historically grounded, and historically driven. What is more, knowledge of history magnifies the span of our human experience, multiplying the timeline of our individual lives by connecting that timeline to the lives of those who have gone before us. And sorry, I'm just reading kind of a smattering of quotes that speak to this. And so we interpret our lives through the lens of the past, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But in this epic quest for history, we encounter a fundamental challenge. The past exists on another plane of time far away from us. We cannot fully access the past because it's no longer present. It is distant, shrouded, mysterious. To visit the past, we require a sort of mental time machine, such as the feeling of transcendence that can be invoked by standing at an atmospheric historic site, viewing rare objects in a museum, reading a gripping historical study, or perhaps encountering a ghost. Of all the possible means of transport into the past, a ghostly encounter is arguably the most immediate, the most personal, and for some people, the most real. I mean, wow. in reading that, I was also thinking, like, why mom is so sentimental and why I think the three of us really enjoyed looking at artifacts, for example, from mom's childhood. We used to love when we'd go mm -hmm. to Granny and Papa's house looking at mom's sentimental box full of, you know, Girl Scout badges and um, love letters from high school boyfriends or, or from friends. Um, that book, like, I think it had, like, an old not used but like a, a panty liner with the garter belt thing to show like <laughs> what menstruating was like back then I mean she was really smart in curating it <laughs> the only kind of yes. silly thing the was why don't you say <laughs> what's on the box the only the only silly thing is um when you take when you remove the box and it's just you know I think it's like a shoe box or a, bi a bigger shoe box but on the other side of the lid is a note written in pencil and it's to my future children. This was what the alphabet looked like when I was a little girl. Right. Thinking like capital A, lowercase which... a, capital B, like thinking the alphabet was going to change. <laughs> I mean, it's so cute. Yeah, it's very sweet. It's like, it also shows a kind of an anthropological mind. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, it's, I've been thinking a lot about my friends are starting to have babies and just thinking about how much uh, 
how many photos, how much digital, how many digital artifacts these kids will have of their own parents. And then also how, you know, how many baby photos these kids will have way more than any right. of us. I ever was thinking had, about that recently right? too, because yes, we had so many, you know, physical photos, you know, filling shoebox after shoebox or frame after frame in our house. But for example, home videos, there aren't that many of us. Um, right. At one point, maybe when I was 10, I found some, of course, there's the famous one where we're getting our first dog, Maisie, which is fun to watch. Mm -hmm. Or recently, um, I rewatched the interview we did with Granny and Papa. But for me, home videos, which were pretty few and far between, like at least ones that feature our dad in them, um, there were a couple that were in our apartment that I found and I was obsessed with watching them. And I think it was partly because I wanted, I don't know, to see proof of my dad and I existing in the same time and place. I wanted to know like what his voice sounded like. I wanted to see him with us. And when you're looking at baby pictures of yourself, it's strange because on the one hand, you know, it's you, but also you can think, Oh my gosh, I was so cute. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't really feel like you. So I don't know. It's a strange experience. No, because you don't remember. It is a strange experience. And um, I would kill for photos, like iPhone photos of mom when she was a teenager or in her 20s, you know, in college. Like we have some photos, of course. But just, you know, to, that that would make that time period feel so alive. And, um, you know, I think when I when I think of the 70s, I think of it in in terms of the way film looked. Back totally. Then. So kind of saturated and grainy and I have to remind myself (laughs) like oh wow living that time things must have been in 4k like they are you know now when we look at things um but you know for for the next generation of kids and I don't know maybe cameras will get even better which is a scary idea but they're gonna see their parents existing sort of in the same frame of reality that they are growing up yeah no I know I know what you mean or like when I think of how people in the 19th century must have seen each other. I think of like daguerreotypes, but those, those aren't right. reality. Those are just indexes of reality and not even if we're going to talk about Susan Sontag, like what gets left out of the frame. But anyways. Um, totally. But we digress. <laughs> we need to talk about ghosts and witchcraft. Um, so Carrie, should we take this all the way back to Salem right now? What do you think? In 1692, this was a town in Massachusetts. Massachusetts and that area at the time was Puritan, right? Like 19 people were put on trial for witchcraft, and I believe 14 of them were found guilty and executed. And they were only they were almost exclusively all women. Four, 14 women, five men, and two dogs. Wow, oh dogs, that's so sad. Sorry, yes, I stand corrected. 14 women, five five men and two dogs. And for the most part, those men were guilty of being associated with or married to the women. This basically all started in the house of Reverend Samuel Paris, um, whose daughters were acting, started acting crazy and saying that they were feeling pinches and, um, you know, having these fits and 
just going crazy. Um, and Tichuba was an enslaved woman working in the household. And she was blamed for, you know, teaching the girls witchcraft. And, um, you know, she confessed to, to signing the devil's um, book. <laughs> But, you know, we have to remember she was an enslaved woman of color. So um, I'm sure there, you know, it stands to believe that her confession was coerced. But um, this is sort of what we've been talking about, Carrie, with othering women and othering women of color in particular, not trusting the Black race because, you know, of their affiliation with witchcraft or, you know, the dark arts, that's Harry Potter, but, um, you know, things that weren't inherently Puritan and Christian, right? right. Or, or, or voodooism right. from African religious traditions. Right. Absolutely. It's interesting to me that the, that, you know, the start of this was all these teenage girls. It's all these women, right? Um, so it was two girls from Samuel Paris's household claimed that they were being bitten and pinched and pricked by invisible spirits. And other girls reported similar feelings in the town and um, just were going crazy. And, uh, you know, so there's been some scholarship that suggests the girls were faking it for attention. Also a very, you know, misogynistic way of thinking about things. And in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, which I feel like is such a touchstone for everyone when it comes to the Salem Witch Trials. But it's also an allegory for McCarthyism. Right, right, right. Did not. That's very smart of you to say. Um, well, right. I, I mean, a witch hunt. Like everyone knows that. Right. <laughs> right, a witch hunt. Um, but in his play, the character of Abigail in real life was 11. In his play, he, she's a 16-year-old, and she's doing this um, because she's having an affair with a married man, right? And she wants to get his wife out of the way by calling her a witch. Anyway, um, interesting time in history. Everyone studies it in school. We went to Salem as a family and did the whole tour. I got my picture taken in a pillory. Um, and so, you know, that sort of goes to what you're saying, Carrie, with the commercialization of historical places of, you know, pain and suffering and oppression right, and trauma. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we'd gone to Salem with Kiki and Jim, our aunt and uncle who lived near Boston. Um, and I was obsessed with um, the witch trials after that. I remember that. Yeah. Um, I think I was in kindergarten at that time and we had big sister, little sister type thing once a week, um, where the th a third grader was your big sister and mine was Tita Ellie. And I think Tita, honestly, it was good. I was paired with her because she and is very wonderfully <laughs> strange, but I would always want to color and I would draw, you know, witches being hanged from, scary trees and, and things like that. <laughs> um, and also around this time, I think this is similar and this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was also obsessed with Henry VIII and those beheadings, mm. you know, uh, divorced, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survives. Yep. And Anne Boleyn and we had gone to London and we'd gone to what was the two? Hampton Court. Hampton Court and seeing the site where Anne Boleyn's head was cut off. and well, on the Tower of London, right? And the right. Um, and I was very interested in that. And I wonder if it has to do with like displaced grief over our dad or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, I do want to speak to though, like kind of the cultural logic of the Salem witch trials mm. Um, mm. and why they make sense for a Puritan society 
I think the anxiety of believing in predestination versus thinking that good works, um, which is what Catholics believe in or what um, grants you access to heaven, predestination with unconditional election, um, which is what the Puritans believed in, which is what Calvinists believed in, means that before you're even born, God has already decided if you're going to be damned or saved. And we see this with John Winthrop, the whole sermon on the Arabella, the famous city upon a hill speech that he gives on the way to Massachusetts Bay Colony or what will become Massachusetts Bay Colony, wanting to constantly prove your chosenness fosters this kind of internal anxiety where you want to create this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. If you're allegedly chosen by God, you better act like it, almost proving to yourself that you are the part of the elect, right? That you're that you're chosen or preordained by God. And this historian who died, I think a couple of years ago, Sok von Berkovich, talks about how the American Jeremiah or, you know, this sermon, and that, that's the earliest example of it, the John Winthrop City Upon a Hill is different from the European one. So the European Jeremiah is this like lamentation over the ways of the world and how how we're a fallen people. But for the Americans and for the Puritans, there's also this energizing force in it because it's saying, but we are the ones selected to, you know, deliver ourselves and, and society from, from salvation. Mm. Right. And like go in, go in and slaughter Native Americans and, you know, and... <laughs> it gives it gives religious justification that but it also prescribes a very specific behavior that you better adhere to you know if you're already predestined you're going to act that way anyways if you have that in the back of your head mm -hmm. so somebody who isn't acting in accordance with puritanical values or rules has clearly been predestined for damnation right mm -hmm. so somebody who is or, or a woman who has an affair or tituba who's an outsider mm -hmm. um those make cultural sense for becoming you know blamed as witches and tried as witches mm. with predestination i mean so you're saying it's it, before you're born you know, it's decided if you're if you're good to get get into heaven. You know, if you have the the ticket, or you're damned. I mean, did so? Did anyone walk around life saying, "Oh, I'm just damned. Fuck it. Let's just YOLO." I mean, probably in some ways, I find that kind of comforting. Um, people talk about Calvinism as being, you know, the idea that you can't do anything to change your fate, or you can't do anything to guarantee your entry into heaven, or you can't save yourself. There's not really much free will in Calvinism, I actually find it kind of comforting because it's like whatever I am doing, right. Right. God I'm already just... planned it for me. So whatever yeah, like I relinquish control, nothing really matters. <laughs> nothing really matters. Exactly. It's but if you like really actually, if you're a Puritan, that causes a lot of anxiety over behavior, right? Mm. Because mm -hmm. you're going to act in a way that you think God has prescribed you to act. And you're going to say, well, God is doing this. Right. Right. And I mean, I think there's so much misogyny baked into uh, the, you know, 
the Abraham, Abrahamic religions, right, or monotheistic religions with Adam and Eve. And, you know, just going back to the very start to Genesis, um, and women can't be trusted, uh, they're conniving. You know, I'm thinking of in Greek tradition, in the Odyssey, Penelope is a, you know, she weaves uh, wool, right? Um, and she's, you know, she's always weaving a web. The, the fu- it's a funeral shroud, though. Oh, that, sorry. Right. The, the thing with Penelope <laughs> is like, she's actually seen as very virtuous because despite having all of these suitors, these suitors. everyone <laughs> thinks that Odysseus is dead. She just keeps weaving the funeral shroud, you know? Right. Right. And she's so good and never entertains any of their um, advances. But I also felt like there was, you know, that, that image kind of stuck with me as being one where women, you know, what are they doing? They're weaving a web. Or, or the almost- fates too. You know, right. Like, that's true. Like almost like a spider. They're, they're going to entrap you. Um, and, you know, you have to admit. Black that widow Andy... spiders. Black widow. Right. Right. Black right? widow. Exactly. Exactly. Black this widow, is... baby. <laughs> that was Iggy Azalea, right? Um, <laughs> is it? But yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also think you can't ignore the fact that beyond predestination and the fact that their religion is based on strong gender norms um, and the control and oppression of women, you know, that, that, that witchcraft was a way to punish women who fell out of line. And, you know, I, I'm reading in this article you sent me from the conversation um, that you were, you know, for any little thing, you could be tried for witchcraft, for being too talkative, for being too domineering, for not having children, for having too many children, um, you know, for being too wealthy, for not being, you know, for being too poor. There was just always something, you know, you were just sort of screwed. <laughs> I'm very grateful that we did not live in that time because we were definitely, we would definitely be witches. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, in terms of the idea that, you know, women's bodies are so shameful and they, or they inspire such lust in men that they're inherently wicked. Of course, it's nothing about, you know, the, there's nothing wrong with the men for lusting and not being able to control themselves. It's, it's women. And I think you see this a lot in uh, movies like The Exorcist, the OG Exorcist, which I know scared the shit out of you. Well, wasn't <laughs> it filmed day. in Arlington, Virginia, which is where our mom grew up? Yeah, I think in Georgetown, and you can see the, the Those steps. steps. Right. Um, I think that, yeah, that was really creepy. I rewatched some of it recently, and I was laughing. I think sometimes you just have to laugh at the things. What, with the scary. vomiting? With the vomiting, and also just, like, the things she was saying. And this is really telling, but, you know, a lot of it is just her being like, fuck me, fuck me. Oh, really? So she's, yeah, like, horny? She's, like, super horny, and so funny. And I'm like, wow, I guess this really is about policing female bodies and and female desire, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, but you were saying something interesting, Ellie, yesterday, um, when we were like preparing for this, um, that in narratives or in films where there's possession, it usually is of a woman. Absolutely. Um, And then I said, well, what about, um, what's it called? The omen. Right. Like, but that's a little boy or, what about, um, you know, we'll talk about hereditary in a moment, but all of the, you know, the whole thing is that payment is looking for a male a vessel, member, a male vessel, right? Well, Not I thought, I thought, oh, really? I thought, well, we'll talk about hereditary in a second. I thought it was sort of like, because Charlie, this thing had happened to Charlie that, um, I don't know. I was a little confused about that. Uh, we'll talk I, about it. Okay. Anyway. I, I did a lot of reading on her. Yes. No, please, please, please. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, it's always a woman and the biggest difference between, you know, the exorcist and 
uh, the Omen kid, whatever his name is. I forget. Damien. Damien. Because mom you. used to call me Damien. Right. And also what's, what's even, what's the girl in the exorcist name? I don't even remember. And I think that's really telling because in the Omen, he is the devil reincarnate, right? He's not so much possessed as he was born this satanic figure and he has a lot of agency and everyone's afraid of him, you know, whereas like the, in the exorcist, the female's character is completely, literally consumed by this demonic presence. And she's stuck in a bed, like tied to a bed most of the time, you know, and right. hitting herself against the wall and hurting herself. Whereas like Damien gets to just sort of chill and grow up and just do weird shit. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I, I remember being really scared. I saw this movie called The Exorcism of Emily Rose, um, which stars this actress who's great. She plays the sister on Dexter. And um, she gets possessed in her dorm room one night, I think, the clock hits a certain number, maybe like 333 or something like demonic or something that takes on import in this movie. But um, it's sort of portrayed as a rape. You see this sort of this, you see a, a movement in underneath her covers and you sort of feel like it's penetrating her through her mm. vagina. Um, and I was just like, I was so freaked out by that. I'm like, oh my God, I do not want to be raped by a demon in my sleep. Um, and so I think that's really interesting that it was framed Well, that's that really way. interesting also um, because I think the like phallic or sort of rape-like imagery of possession here, it's it's by Satan or by Payman, um, takes from like Roman and Greek tradition of when a god or goddess takes over um, a human body that just reminded me of dido and what book what is that right. book four of the aeneid yes when she becomes isn't she hit with cupid's arrow or something right but and the way that it's described is very sexual and like penetrative and i mm -hmm. think described like a snake entering her heart which i, I don't know mm. i'm trying to remember but then also amata who's the mother of somebody in a much later book in the Aeneid. And I know this because I, when I did Virgil Academy in high school and I'm forgetting a lot, Queen Amata is driven insane by poison injected by one of the snakes from Electo's head. And it's, it's also very kind of rapey imagery um, in that case too. And with Dido. And in both cases, they're, the women are driven to insanity. And mm -hmm. I don't know, that speaks to something about the connection between uh, or the cultural connection between hysteria and women. And I don't know, this thought that they're being controlled by the devil or, or dark forces or something. Right. Absolutely. And she kills herself, Dido. Dido. Yeah, she does. Um, no, absolutely. I, it's, it's fascinating to me, the men, you know, our society's obsessed with women as these sexual beings. They're in awe of our ability to create life. I think that there's a power in femininity and just the feminine bi body, feminine biology. And I think that it's just been, it's been something that somehow mystifies, you know, the patriarchal institutions of the medical establishment or government or whatever, and um, been, you know, been deemed somehow uh, gross or dirty or, you know, the, the reason we're crazy and irrational hysteria you know, I think that um, his, the reason it's called a hysterectomy is because in Greek, as in hysteria, it refers to womb. So when you look at that and then a right. word like oh, hysterical. That's so interesting. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, you know, uh, women basically being deemed hysterical um, and being confined to their room, like in. Or, um, or later on lobotomized. Right. 
like in uh, the yellow wallpaper. Oh I, yeah, I want to totally. say Charlotte Charlotte Perkins Gilmore. Wow, wait, I, I think I it's that. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, um, Gilman, not Gilmore. Gilman, got it. But um, yeah, I think it's really interesting when you put it into the context of something like The Exorcist or. Um, you know, gosh, even on our show or Rosemary's baby on our show, we have, you know, sort of, we've have a number of pregnancies where it's like, there's this demon child and, um, you know, within the context of Roe v. Wade, it just, it's all very, it's, it's very confusing and, um, and yeah, it's a lot. Something I just thought of though, when, when we were talking about Dido in, in the Aeneid, is I, I see now this connection between Dido and Eve, but you know Dido is basically being controlled by Cupid, mm. and talk about predestination. Right. I know, like it's it's different, you know, it's a different conception of it. Um, but you know, the whole point of Dido killing herself so that Aeneas can fulfill his destiny, right? And basically found Rome. Like she had Yes, to... found Rome, but also right. you remember what Dido is queen of? Dido's queen of Carthage. Carthage. And years and years later, and this is how the Aeneid is also kind of a work of right. political propaganda on about, behalf of yeah, empire, right? Right. And tells you about that time the time in which Virgil was writing. Right. Which was it was all basically a way to um to suck up to uh Augustus, right? <laughs> right. But then and make you know, it look really because good. Carthage will eventually be destroyed by Rome. And this is kind of the melding of history and, and divine intervention or history and mythology. Mythos is history. History is mythos, which brings us back to the American Jeremiah. But also just like the fact that there are historical consequences for what Dido does or really mm. she has no agency in the matter. Or for mm. Eve, it's, you know, being tempted by Satan. But if you're Puritan, you think that all of that is predestined anyways. So God meant for the fall from grace to happen. But sorry, mm-hmm. we're getting like a No, this off is really topic. interesting. But yeah, the idea that, yeah, Dido had to die. She had to fall in love with Aeneas to give him, say, like, you know, um, sanctuary in Carthage on his mm-hmm. way back from Troy, right? But yeah, and that she's she, she dies for this bigger cause. And um, you see that also in the Salem Witch Trials, because I think that when there was phenomena that people couldn't understand, they looked for simple explanations and, oh, it's, it's witchcraft, right? It's this woman, she's responsible. If we get rid of her, this problem will go away. You know, the livestock will stop getting sick or whatever it was. Oh, and then one more thing, like, that also relates to hereditary. You remember um, Iphigenia? Iphigenia is the daughter of Agamemnon. In Greek mythology, basically, she has to be sacrificed as they're trying, the Greeks are trying to, I guess, get to Troy and Ephigenia has to be sacrificed to appease the gods basically and, and grant more favorable weather. But um, I don't know if you noticed this in Hereditary, Ellie, which I watched last weekend and can't stop thinking about, but Peter, when he's shown in school, remember that scene where he looks at his reflection and it's smiling, even though he's not smiling yeah. and he gets like thrown and he starts banging his head into the desk. He's learning about Ephigenia. Oh, interesting. But the thing about hereditary that's interesting and, and goes with your theme, Ellie, about like the difference between when men versus women are possessed. When women are possessed, it strips away their agency and, you know, they have to be chained to a bed in the case of the exorcist or Emily Rose or whatever. In the case of, of hereditary, initially it's Charlie who is possessed by payment, mm-hmm. right? One of the 
one of the kings of hell. Um, and that is why the grandmother always wanted Charlie to be a boy, because you learn later on when Annie finds the book related to Payman and the cult cult that her mother was in. It says that Payman seeks a male body as a host. Mm. I'm wondering why she wanted Charlie to be a boy when she had well, that she was had Peter already. Well, we learned that Annie kept um, Peter away from her mother. What's the mother's Got name? It. Right, because the grandmother wouldn't she Lee. wouldn't she breastfeed Charlie? She would try to breastfeed Charlie, um, and we learned that through the the use of miniatures. Maybe there's something to say about like predestination with the miniatures being controlled mm. and you know in the opening right. scene there are people in a it's house. a miniature but it's a real scene dolls right? In a house, I mean. in... right we're all dolls right right <laughs> right <laughs> in the sims or whatever um charlie as host doesn't end up working out her deadly peanut allergy which is ultimately what kills her and drives mm-hmm. payment out of her body and right. it also doesn't work when payment enters annie's body and it has to be hereditary, right? That's why it can't be the the male body can't be the dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm getting so much into hereditary right now. No, it's but okay. It's it's amazing. The answer for payment it's has so to scary. be Peter one because it's within Queen Lee's bloodline, but also that's the body that the the demon is seeking. And when Charlie is possessed by payment. She's just kind of like an outcast and she's killed in this gruesome way. But Peter becoming possessed by Payman, you know, hail Payman in the treehouse. That's the apotheosis of everything. And that's what's, and he's going to become super powerful versus with Charlie that she was controlled by it. It wasn't like she became king. Right. And I mean, yeah, the two women are beheaded. Right. So, um, no, hundred percent. And I, you know, I think beyond this, you know, it being super scary and, um, tapping into this real demonic figure and and folklore around that. It's such an emotional movie. Tony Collette gives an incredible performance and I think it's really about generational trauma, (laughs) um, and, uh, about grief and loss. I mean, and mental illness too. Totally. Because remember, they say that Annie says her brother had schizophrenia and killed mm -hmm. himself because Lee, the mother, was always trying to put people in him. And Mm -hmm. Annie in the support group took that to just be a symptom of his mental illness. But it really was Mm -hmm. that she was trying to put pain in in him inside his body. But, you know, if you look at it as a metaphor and take away all of the plot, um, and if you take away the witchcraft, taking it literally, I think, you know, metaphorically, it's it's about grief and loss and about family dysfunction, right? And, you know, maybe how death could ha- lead to a family breaking up and falling apart and literally, you know, not literally setting on fire, but you could see, <laughs> I sort of felt like, oh, this is what this is really about is grief, which I think is, is what makes horror stories so amazing and that those to me are the best kinds of horrors psychological horror movies and thrillers um i you know sure i can enjoy or you know be scared by the texas chainsaw massacre or slasher films and i appreciated scream and how that was such a satire of it all um but to me you know the best horror is about grief i think really yeah or really like unresolved trauma unresolved trauma absolutely and um you know carrie and i've been talking about 
The Haunting of Hill House, uh, the original Shirley Jackson book, of course, and then the adaptation by Mike Flanagan for Netflix, and then the subsequent season of that, uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, and, you know, that that's, he, cre you know, takes the people at Hill House in Shirley's novel, Shirley's, like we're on first name basis, Shirley Jackson's novel and makes them into a family. Um, and it's sort of how the house manifests each of their issues. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and how they interact with each other in the house. It's just all really fascinating when it's not just about scaring you. It's really about making you feel right and think. I think that the scary movies or, or thrillers that interest me the most, and this is part of why I, I, I really like Jordan Peele, are, um, you know, movies or books too that deal with trauma, but it's trauma of an entire people or historical trauma. I mean, I think that's what's behind Get Out. Um, that's also behind the, the film Antebellum, um, or even Candyman is dealing with the trauma of, of police violence, um, against mm -hmm. black people. And that brings me to a lot of what Taya Niles talks about in Tales from the Haunted South. She writes through ghost stories, we preserve important personal and collective knowledge about what took place in the past and particularly about the events that we have excluded from active embraced memory. One question um, she asks, or she's bringing up another historian asking questions of like, where do we draw the line of where ghost tours are appropriate? You know, why is it inappropriate to have ghost tours, say, of a place like Auschwitz or some place like the, the World Trade Center site? It's partly because we've historically, I think, at least in the mainstream, acknowledged those histories and and publicly mourned or publicly come to terms, have grappled with um, through, you know, public memorials, museums. And I think that's changing as a culture with American slavery. But she writes about why both ghosts of Native Americans and ghosts of enslaved Black people um, have played such a cultural role in the American imagination. And she says, ghosts loosed from a troubled and indeed troubling past besiege the American landscape. Mm -hmm. So a modern example of that would be poltergeist, where the house is haunted because it's on an indigenous burial ground. Right. And she says that in order for American settlers, so white, you know, Europeans, people like the Puritans, to claim an authentic indigenous identity in a new land. So meaning indigenous, making themselves the indigenous people. Native mm -hmm. Americans had to be symbolically and literally killed and buried only to return as ineffectual ghosts or to be, be replaced by whites, quote, playing Indian. And the whole idea of playing Indian is so important um, to Amstead and the Amstead community. Um, she says the Indian cemetery stands in for a past native presence, signaling the demise of the actual Indian, naturalizing native peoples as features of an American landscape and containing negative emotion for those who now occupy the land. And she says that the enslaved African-American ghost is the Indian ghost's double. Mm. While the red ghost keeps alive the memory of Indian removal in US history, representing white terror and lament, the black ghost marks the demonic spirit of possession through which Americans transformed people into things. These twin crimes against humanity, removal, and slavery form the underpinning of America's existence. Mm. I don't know. I just think that that is so true and interesting. Definitely. And she talks about how ghost stories do this double work because on the one hand, they bring up 
often trauma that hasn't been culturally dealt with. So on the one hand, they bring up stories that have been ignored kind of by the formal historical record or have been marginalized or, you know, turned into fringe parts of history. So that's actually a good thing. But on the other hand, because they're ghost stories, they make the public take them less seriously. Right. And, you know, and we can also be real that those kinds of ghost stories are good for business because when you go to a place like New Orleans, that just feels so so rife with history and also the slave trade and there are cemeteries everywhere and these old houses, you know, and, um, you know, everything's covered in, you know, ivy or moss or, you know, you just get the sense Mm -hmm. that it just feels so haunted and it's good for business too, right? Right. Because it's like, who, who would haunt these places? Right. You know, people who were, uh, basically screwed over in their lives, um, here. And it's, it's sad too, because, you know, gosh, if these ghosts really do exist in some way, it's like, can't we just leave them alone? (laughs) And the idea that they're stuck in purgatory forever for our amusement and entertainment, um, and for And also the conclusion (laughs) that it it would be inappropriate, for example, to do a ghost tour of Auschwitz or to do a ghost tour of World Trade Center site. Right. Um, We wouldn't do that because it disrespects the people who died there. But why don't we afford the same to, you know, people who died in bondage? Um, And the whole thing about you saying it's good for business is interesting because Taya Niles went on all these tours to experience them and to write about them. And if va- she says, if vacationing tourists must somehow confront the ugliness of slavery that repels as well as attracts their notice, they'd probably rather do so from a safe emotional distance. The ghost tour, which showcases violent themes with a playful fright and wink, is therefore proving to be a popular conveyance of antebellum Southern history. Um, and she says, you know, the idea of the South um, can't exist without slavery or the enslaved person as like this special character in, in the imagination. Wow, that's really interesting. And as you've been speaking, I pulled up an article I read for this for this episode. Um, and it is uh, an article from The New Yorker back in May of 2021 by Casey Kep called Why Did So Many Victorians Try to Speak with the Dead? And I just want to read a little part um, about uh, the the use of channeling uh, ghosts, spirits who were members of another race or, you know, Native Americans. Um, so for white mediums, communicating with spirits of other races could be a form of expiation, a way to confront violent histories and make cultural amends, or merely crude appropriation, garish performance art that was good for business. Um, so I guess there were a lot of white spiritualists at the time, women who said that they were channeling the voices of Native Americans and Black people and former slaves and all that. Um, but yeah, let's, you know, if I can keep going with this article, it's it's a great article, highly recommend. Um, it sort of shows the, the, the shift in attitudes from Salem at the late 17th century uh, to the beginning of the 19th century or mid 19th century when it became cool to be a medium um, and to speak, communicate with the dead. And so, you know, while we can argue that this is something that has interested us for a long time across various cultures and and eras in history, um, you know, from the oracles of ancient Greece um, and and the symbols of ancient Rome, and of course, you know, uh, Hindu ideas about reincarnation and all that. Um, in the U.S., scholars sort of pinpoint a, a, an exact date when they think all of this 
this craze, this 19th century craze in spiritualism started. So that date was March 31st, 1848. And on that night in Hydesville, New York, two sisters, 14-year-old Maggie Fox and 11-year-old Kate, convinced some of their neighbors that they could hear these knockings in their house, rappings on the walls and doors that were the communications of a spirit. And they... (laughs) They claimed that they were able to communicate with the ghost responsible, and they they called him Mr. Splitfoot. And so, you know, they said that they were communicating with him. He would rap once if it was a yes, rap no if it was a no, and they started touring the country, and they called their act Wonderful Phenomena, and they had a paying audience uh, for the next four years that this is what they did with their lives. William Lloyd Garrison and James Fenimore Cooper came Horace Greeley and his wife. And, you know, they were featured in the New York Daily Tribune, Greeley's newspaper. And this was just really something that took hold, you know, towards the second half of the 19th century and mainly was something pursued by women. And so being a spiritualist as, you know, in contrast to being a witch in the Puritan days of the, you know, Salem witch trials, it was a really cool thing to be, you know, they were creating this new professional track for themselves that actually gave them a public voice (laughs) and, uh, you know, brought them sometimes into the room where it happens, you know, like Mary Todd Lincoln evidently was really into spiritualism because she lost three out of her four children um, and her spiritualist had an audience, you know, all the time with Lincoln as he was working on the Emancipation Proclamation. So uh, they leaned into the fact that, you know, all the things women were criticized for being emotional, very highly sensitive, impressionable, not to be trusted. Hysterical, not to be trusted with, you know, having any real power contributing to society in any real way. They leaned into that and they're like, you're right, I am this, you know, I am an impressionable woman and I am a vessel um, Mm. for these spirits. And, you know, not only was it because infant mortality was really high, they were helping people, you know, connect personally with the dead, with dead children, with dead parents, aunts and uncles, but they were also connecting to like Shakespeare and Plato and, you know, saying that these, you know, this was an unpublished verse by Shakespeare and like adding to the canons of literature and art. Well, you know, Two things. One, I wondered, like, what is the cultural logic of spiritualism in the Victorian era? I mean, why was it okay? Because Mm. Victorians also followed a strict prescription for behavior. So why was it? Why was it okay? I mean, do well, you have something to do? I have a few potential answers um, okay. in this great article. Um, but this article also says it's, you know, you can't pinpoint it. It's this, it's something, it is a urge that has existed as long as man has dealt with mortality, right? Um, but, you know, I think the Civil War had a lot to do with it. Three quarters of a million dead soldiers, you know, around that time too, technology, the photograph came about. Oh and, my God, I was going to ask you about this. Okay. Yeah. And the, the, the photograph was so crazy to people. You know, it almost made, it felt magical. It felt mm-hmm. surreal. I mean, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. It could, you know, take an image from anywhere in the world and bring it right to you in your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, something that became popular was spirit photography. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln actually hired a spirit photographer to take a photo of her with her husband's dead body after he had been oh, assassinated. Oh, right. And they would do this to babies, too, who, who died. Right. 
But um, uh, one of the first or you know, most preeminent of the spirit photographers was a man named William H. Mumler. And he took a self-portrait once and he developed it. And he saw what he called an extra. And it was a young girl sitting next to him. And he recognized her as a cousin who died a dozen years before. So this was a whole new craze. I, I think it's really interesting, the connection to photography. And also that this spiritualism, which is in so many ways, anti-scientific, right, is coming about while the Western world is really approaching modernity. Well, what's funny about that, Carrie, sorry to interrupt you, is that at this time, they were trying to marry science with spiritualism. Mm, And even Mark Twain, Frederick Douglass, Queen Victoria herself were all very interested Um, And they wanted to study the science Hmm. of this. And I think because there was such technological advancement at this time, um, they maybe people were more open to the possibility. Like, you know, a photograph was magic. It was, as as this writer says, an inherently spooky medium that could show things that were not actually there. Um, Well, that's interesting that, that this person says that because, you know, I've been reading Susan Sontag, obviously, on photography, but also regarding the pain of others, which she wrote in, I think, 2004. Um, so after 9-11 and, and the internet. But she says that people often see photographs as evident or incontrovertible truths versus paintings or drawings are depictions. Mm-hmm. Um, like people see photographs as stand-ins for reality when that's not really always the case. Photographs are framed, um, especially back then when it took a long time to take a picture and cameras weren't just handheld. They were huge contraptions. People had to pose. They weren't really candids. Even um, she talks about civil war photography of battlefields, you know, and that was really the first, at least in America, the first photographed war. Often, you know, they're, they're photos of the battlefield, but after everyone's died, after the battle has happened, And often Civil War photographers would move bodies to get a better picture. Mm -hmm. Um, No, 100%. I think, I think. But it makes me think also of the orbs, like, oh, if that's caught on camera and it's a whole thing, you know, paranormal activities, you know, those movies that Lori Beth really enjoyed. Yeah. The thrill of them or the interest in them is, oh, you know, this is proof because it's been caught on camera. Right. Never mind the fact that it might be deceptively edited or, I mean, there's so many explanations for it. But I just think that the insistence that photography is reality um, is something that needs to be dissected. In terms of the orbs, like, that could be just the backscatter of light on the lens. It's not necessarily proof. I don't know. Well, you can't prove it one way or the other a lot. And um, I just wanted to say back, you know, in this era that we're talking about, the telegraph was a huge thing and it offered a way to talk to people who weren't there. (laughs) You know, at this time, spirit photographs and spirit telegraphs were a thing. And even inventors like Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison were interested in this. And they were coming up with the radio and the telephone, right? And that was all about bringing voices to you. Like Marie Curie was really interested in this. It just, there was a whole faction of scientists who wanted to use science to prove that this stuff was real. Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 
<laughs> there was also skeptics who wanted to prove that it wasn't. Uh, you know, they did a test in Boston. You know, a lot of this, funnily enough, centered in Massachusetts, where mm. Salem was. They Scientific American um, offered five thousand dollars in prize money to disprove these uh, these mediums who were women who were often, you know, very wealthy. They were also women who weren't, uh, but they became these celebrities in their own rights. And during readings, um, they actually, you know, they would have seances, they would have what's called table turnings, which is like when everyone sits in a circle with their hands on the table and you kind of wait for the table to be tilted or to turn. Um, you know, the Ouija board is based on a thing called a planchette, which was just a dictation tool. Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure how it And the Ouija board is now trademarked or was trademarked for a time by Hasbro. <laughs> oh, right. Of course. And right. who hasn't played the Ouija board, but it's such a girl's game, which is really funny. Um, but the other thing that these mediums would do is called, um, they would do ectoplasm readings. So that was what they called spiritual substances that they they like expelled from their own bodies, often mm. through their mouths, noses, ears, but sometimes their stomachs or vaginas. Oh my. <laughs> so, you know, I think they would spit and snot and like they would try to, it was like almost like reading tea leaves, but in um, human secretions. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think like that intersection between technology and spiritualism is super interesting and makes a lot of cultural sense. Um, you know, I remember I wanted to have a seance when I was little and I was going to do it, but chickened out, you know, you're supposed to have a tape recorder. And so often people who say they experience, you know, paranormal activity, it's through technology. So it might be through static and a radio mm. or technology kind of, um, malfunctioning, right? Or in the mm -hmm. ring, the static in the TV that the girl crawls out right. of, right? Um, right. Or, or, you know, that you might hear somebody on the phone or something like that. Or even with mom, you know, she had a seance when she was a little girl and she was on a sleepover. <laughs> and for some reason, they thought, why don't we try to bring back Betsy Ross? Uh, <laughs> that's so <laughs> random, right? Do you know this story? <laughs> no. I oh, you don't know? Okay. So, you know, they're, they're I don't know, sitting around. Betsy, if you're here, give us a sign, give us a sign, let us know you're here. And nothing happened. But then, you know, when they finished the seance, they turned on the TV and the Star Spangled Banner was playing with the American flag before a, I don't know, a baseball game or something. Um, mm. So I don't know. I don't really know what to make of that. But the idea that modernity and spiritualism would conflict with each other, but at the same time, to know that all of these inventors and very scientifically minded people were interested in studying it is really fascinating mm -hmm. to me. Well, I think because it's it, it comes back to what Lori Beth used to always say, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. And I think it was about learning what energy is, you know, identifying the electromagnetic spectrum that all of um, this technology relied on, you know, telephones, telegraphs, whatever, right? It's all about these waves <laughs> that we can't see, but are very mm -hmm. real and can be used. Um, and so, yeah, they did try to prove it. They tried to disprove it. Um, you know, I just want to talk about a few instances. Uh, the Scientific American offered $5,000 in prize money to a group of academics from Harvard and MIT, and that also included Harry Houdini, mm. because he knew a lot about illusions. He had like a side hustle exposing hucksters who were taking advantage of people. And I think 
maybe for him, maybe he was the biggest skeptic of all because he saw what's possible, you know, what, what an illusion, what you can fool people into believing. Right. And so one of the, one of the women he really took down or targeted was a woman named Mina Crandon. And she was married to a prominent surgeon in Boston and like the elite came to her performances. She would channel her dead brother's voice. Um, she would levitate tables and she would produce ectoplasm from between her legs, often while naked. So I'm sure people, you know, were not, were, especially the clergy was not into that because it's literally women like with their vaginas out. Um, what? But, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, you know, Houdini just, he never relented. He just wanted to keep discrediting her and he published pamphlet after pamphlet detailing her tricks. But in some way, even though he, you know, worked so hard to discredit her, um, her fame only grew as a result of him being obsessed with her. Why are you so obsessed with me, Houdini? <laughs> anyway, so I think that's that's pretty pretty interesting. Um, and you know, I think this this part of the article really sums it up. For the most part, those investigations only succeeded in disproving the phenomenon they studied. But it was William James, a founding member. Um, who best articulated why they nonetheless continued their work. If you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, you mustn't seek to show that no crows are. It is enough to prove one single crow to be white. Yeah. I, I just wanted to say one thing. You know, you're talking about women as being the conjurers, but women are also often the conjured or they're the ghosts that are left wandering, wandering, sorry, because they have unfinished business, right? Um, and American Gothics according to this, I don't know, scholar Renee Berglund, who writes the, the National Uncanny, American Gothics are different from European, one, because of the rise of the scientific method, the development of ways to test the empirical validity of the supernatural, and also because colonists in the Americas couldn't take their ancestors with them, uh, moving from a built-up landscape full of folklore and traditions they understood to a landscape they couldn't see as fully settled, full of folklore mm -hmm. and traditions they didn't know. And that's why, you know, in European gothics or ghost stories, the ghost or the apparition is a public phenomenon and it's visible to many people. The ghost is kind of public business um, or it's used, there's public interest in having the case solved versus in post-enlightenment mm -hmm. or in America and, and in modernity, the ghost is something that's private that either appears to one person exclusively. So we saw that in Hereditary with, you know, Annie sees her mother or later on. The, the husband can't believe or doesn't see the ghost that Annie sees or that later Peter sees. The one person who sees it often is disbelieved by the other people. Um, mm -hmm. And the motivations for the ghost might be murkier. Um, and I just wow. think taking it back to that theme of ghost stories being potentially radical forms of history telling, um, because they go against like the established narrative and also the concept that in America, the ghosts are often, um, classes of people who have been historically exploited, wronged, killed. So we talked about the importance of enslaved people, of Native Americans, of hysteric women, right? The ghost is always of somebody who is othered, like you were saying earlier. So in Jane Eyre, mm. I mean, I know she's not a ghost, but Bertha Mason, you know, the big reveal that Rochester has been keeping this, I guess, Creole woman from the Caribbean who's crazy 
and has hysteria in the attic. Right. And um, that sort of taps into Gaslight, you know, where we get that term from, the 1944 movie um, starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. Um, And actually, shout out to Angela Lansbury, because that's her film debut. Um, But yeah, the idea that women can't be trusted to believe what they're hearing to be true. And that, yeah, what you're saying about Bertha and the woman in the attic, I think is really interesting. And we could totally do a whole episode about gaslighting and understanding that. But yeah, I mean, you understand why when you, back in the day, you couldn't have photographs of of your dead relatives. And so I think you're looking for anything to connect to them. And what's, you know, believing that a photograph could exist and believing that you can speak to the dead at that time probably seemed equally incredulous and magical, right? Um, And women made a killing in this business, you know? um, Women profited, and uh, I'm just going to read a little bit about the women who came out of this movement. Um, so, you know, in its Victorian incarnation, spiritualism provided ways for female mediums to lead and to profit. The medium Annie Denton Cridge became a newspaper publisher and wrote one of the earliest feminist utopian novels, um, wherein the narrator dreams first of a matriarchal government on Mars that oppresses men and then that America has a female president. Uh, Victoria Woodhull was a clairvoyant turned suffragist. And along with her sister, she became one of the first women to start a brokerage firm on Wall Street and later the first woman to run for president of the United States. Emma Hardinge Bidden, Britain, excuse me, an opera singing skeptic who set out to discredit the spiritualists but ended up joining them, became one of the country's most popular public speakers and helped Lincoln win re-election. So it just goes to show you like the, 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 the overlap between these trans mediums and women becoming more publicly facing, having more of a voice, gaining the right to vote in 1919. Um, I never really understood the the overlap of that until we started having these conversations. I just, I want to wrap things up because literally yesterday, um, a wonderful article dropped in the New Yorker and online um, by a beautiful writer, Nell Stevens. Uh, It's called What Ghost Stories Taught Me About My Queer Self. And I just, thought this was also a really beautiful way of understanding ghost stories um, and that they can stand as metaphors and ghosts are are manifestations of grief and guilt and trauma and loss, but also about um, a lack of understanding of your identity or or literally, you know, uh, the manifestation of a secret hidden identity, which, you know, so many queer people felt that way about that part of themselves forever. Um, And you see this in The Haunting of Bly Manor, especially with the character of Danny. That story is based on Henry James's The Turn of the Screw from 1898, but it reimagines it as a sapphic romance. Um, And in The Haunting of Bly Manor, Danny is, is, every time she looks in a mirror, she's haunted by this ghost who has sort of these two headlights Mm -hmm. for eyes. Um, And it's revealed that that's her fiancé who after she told him she was gay, he got out of the car and got right. hit by a car. And in his in his glasses, the headlights of the car are forever reflected. And it's a manifestation of her her guilt over, you know, what happened with him and also her inability to be her true self. So I think that's just a really lovely way of looking at things. And I want to just read a, a piece from it, which is that ghosts transgress binaries in all sorts of ways, life and death, presence and absence, comfort and grief. And, you know, looking back on the stories that she read as a child and young adult, she sees now how they're, you know, spectral presences in ghost stories by seeing, by being seen and not seen, by exerting energy where none was anticipated, spoke to the queerness I felt within me and didn't understand. At that time in my life, I experienced my queerness as an unknowable force, 
something that might well try to lure me out in the cold, something that I tried not to look at directly. So I just, I thought that was a really lovely way of looking at horror. And I think for everyone, it's a personal thing. Everyone has their own relationship with horror. And for us, you know, I think our, it has a lot to do with our dad and, you know, complicated feelings, being afraid by the idea of a ghost, but also comforted. Um, as, as this writer Nell Stevens says, it's, it's a lot of binaries and dichotomies, right? Um, but sometimes it's good to embrace what you're afraid right. of right. and like look at trauma head on and, and yeah, like all be, it's something we all go through right. loss and we're all, we're all going to die. <laughs> well, and on that really, happy note, <laughs> what kind of ghost would you want to be? Um, I don't know. I think, gosh, if I was a ghost and, but I would want to be free. I wouldn't want to be contained to one space. Right. You know what I mean? Right. I just would want to like go experience, you know, I travel everywhere. You probably can get around really easily. Right. <laughs> what about you? Well, I remember listening now to an episode of Poog, or maybe it was when I saw Get On Your Knees. I think it was Get On Your Knees. Jacqueline Novak says something about when she, whenever she takes a picture, just in case, she takes it with the knowledge in the back of her head that one day somebody might see it after she's dead and she wants the person viewing it to know that so like the faith that she makes in the picture is telling the viewer yeah yeah, like I know I'm dead and you're looking at me (laughs) amazing Amazing. I think that's really funny funny. well anyway thank you so much for joining us for this Halloween spooky Halloween a little early episode um we're so excited that Midnight's Taylor Swift's new album is finally out. We are so excited to just completely devour it this weekend. And next week, we hope you'll join us for a bit of a postmortem analysis on the new album and a discussion about Taylor through the years. We're big Swifties. And if that's not for you, that's totally cool. But if it is, please join us. We want hardcore loyal fans to listen. So love you. Thanks, Carrie. Love you like a sister. Bye. I have this thing where I